0: plushcare.com slash weight loss the truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality and that's why the central narrative is falling apart right now in the United States
1: people should not be walking around with must
0: well, see the central narrative for the fiction that it is we are Americans while elections are sometimes messy this was a secure election the founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance and it's up to us to finish the job I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. it's thursday july 20th 2023 the 911th day of dystopia i'm your moderator chris paul let's be reasonable a warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So yesterday we discussed Donald Trump's statement that was released on Tuesday, where he announced that he had received a target letter from the DOJ, letting him know on Sunday night that he had the opportunity, if he so wished, to appear before a federal grand jury in the next four days in order to give the DOJ his side of the story in relation to some aspect of Jack Smith's investigation into Donald Trump, presumably about something having to do with January 6th. And we'll get into some more of the substance on those potential charges in a few minutes. But we talked about how Trump's announcement of this target letter served as a piece of viral content that would go out to everyone. Everyone was going to see it in part or in full, or they would hear some reporting about it. People are going to know that Donald Trump received this target letter and it could signal that an indictment is coming up soon. So, Trump, knowing that this would be a massive piece of viral content, loaded up this piece of content with all of these little narrative grenades, all of the pieces of the counter narrative that he wants to seed out there in the general public. Someone who might not be on truth social, follow Donald Trump, someone who doesn't want to have anything to do with Donald Trump and will never listen to a word he says might end up reading this truth social post secondhand, this announcement in some other news release or sentences from this announcement, whatever it is, he's making sure that those ideas get in people's minds. And that is always the most important thing. Once an idea gets in there, you actually have to do work to deny it. And Trump haters will do that. They want to know what Donald Trump says so that they can immediately figure out how it's wrong and how Donald Trump is bad and dangerous forever ever saying it because they know how they feel When he says these things that they know are true, despite their denials, that is why they hate Donald Trump, because he makes them feel bad in that way so often, and they will continue to feel bad in that way until they realize that Trump is telling the truth until they go and check for themselves and find out, hey, you're being lied to again, commie. All that matters is that the ideas get in there because when they realize they were wrong about everything, which is their future, it'll be easier to see what the right answers are because they're already living somewhere within the soft skulls of the child brains. For instance, most of them understand on some level that the Donald Trump and Stormy Daniels thing was completely and totally false. But they also know that they've memorized 10 or 15 parts of that story. And they can't all be false. That's what they think. They think that all the parts are real or most of the parts are real. And they just didn't add up to a thing that got them across the finish line. It was sort of true. It was mostly true. It just wasn't true enough to work. And at the moment, they finally realize that they were tricked about virtually everything. They will understand that all of the parts of that story were false. And when that happens, it becomes easier to see what the true part is. So Donald Trump loads up this announcement with all of these little narrative grenades, knowing that he's just chucking them out there and they will eventually explode in the minds of all the child brains. But there was one other interesting part of his statement, and that was where he mentioned that all of this incoming from the DOJ, a target letter on a Sunday evening, was because in his speech He mentioned that he thought there should be a federal takeover of Washington, D.C. He actually said it twice in this announcement. And it's either a very strange and mundane thing to say in an announcement like that, which would make it totally out of place and in no way something that would terrorize the DOJ into sending down yet another false indictment. Or perhaps he was speaking to something much bigger and much scarier for the global regime. And that's the possibility that they may have their imperial capital removed from their imperial control. Now, we are in a very strange time where it is difficult to tell who has power over what. And that is one of the difficulties of understanding the world In the complicated and hard to discern paradigm that I call good twin, evil twin, the people in favor of sovereign nations in order to protect sovereign individuals and human rights, natural rights, God-given rights, or the collectivist ideology of the neo-feudalist global communist regime who don't care one bit about sovereign nations. They are explicit about that. They don't hide it. They talk about global governance. They have global governing bodies set up all over the world to deal with absolutely everything. And when you don't care about preserving sovereign nations, you can't possibly care about preserving sovereign individuals. People can simply move or be moved wherever it's decided they're most needed. When you're analyzing the world through that paradigm, it is more difficult than making everything about D and R, or left and right, or blue and red. And when you move beyond America's borders, absolutely nothing makes sense in the normie paradigm. America versus Russia versus China versus Brazil? What does that mean? The people who don't believe in borders certainly could not argue that all of the countries of the world are looking out for their own interests. They don't even pretend anymore. They talk about the countries of the world complying with the global order, doing what's best for everyone, according to the regime. So it's harder to see the world through the good twin evil twin paradigm, but it is necessary nonetheless And when you commit to doing that, you realize that the sources of power and the holders of power are a bit harder to discern. We are told right now that the Democrats, the left, the blue team are in power right now in the presidency and this or that governorship and the Senate. But the red team, the Republicans, the R's, the right, they're in charge of the House. But no matter who controls which thing, all of it is very American. And the default explanation always is that the government is serving America as a sovereign nation. And because that's the default, people will defend that position for no reason and deny any other interpretation of what's going on unless you can prove to them beyond all shadow of a doubt in exactly the ways they require, that this new version is the one they should accept and it has to first be accepted by higher authorities than them so that they do not run the risk of being embarrassed by holding an idea that the very serious intellectuals might not take seriously. That approach to thinking has an end point. You're going to make a lot of mistakes that way because it's not an objective look at the world. It is just a way to continue impressing people within the party of false decorum. But who holds power over Washington, D.C.? And has that changed because there does not seem to be a reason for the regime to get upset or for the DOJ to go out and indict a former president because he wants at some point in the future to. Try to clean up the litter in Washington, D.C. and solve the problem of homeless encampments. They're not freaking out about that. It wouldn't make sense. At some point, you have to consider the possibility that Washington, D.C. really is its own thing and not in any important sense part of America, that the government we are told represents us certainly does not. They are not elected and placed there through legitimate elections. They do not in any way serve the interests of their constituents, and they don't have a problem admitting it. And it seems, based on evidence and belief, to serve the interests of the global regime. So yesterday, this article was posted on a new-ish website called Based Politics, based hyphen politics, and the branding is terrible. They shouldn't have done this. They really shouldn't have. It might be the worst branding I've ever seen, and these people are decidedly not based. He has a rainbow flag emoji in his Twitter handle and does podcast episodes critiquing Tucker Carlson's softball interview of Andrew Tate. You know, super important based stuff. But despite that horrific branding... I will nonetheless share this article from yesterday written by a man named Jack Hunter. The headline is Rand Paul's constitutional war amendment fails. On Wednesday, the Senate voted on an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act that would have made clear that only Congress can declare war despite Article 5 of the NATO agreement. Article 5 says that an attack on any NATO nation means every member country must join to defend it. Paul wanted Paul wanted to clarify that NATO doesn't supersede Congress's constitutional war powers. The amendment needed 60 votes to pass. It was defeated in a final vote of 83 to 16. Article 5 does not supersede Congress's responsibility to declare war, Paul said on the Senate floor on Wednesday he added, I think it should be an easy vote to affirm the Constitution. To vote against affirming the Constitution actually places doubt in the Constitution. It also places doubt in the oaths of everyone casting that vote. The 16 who voted with Paul for his amendment, all Republicans were Senators Mike Braun, Ted Cruz, Steve Daines, Bill Haggerty, Josh Hawley, Ron Johnson, John Kennedy, James Langford, Mike Lee, Cynthia Loomis, Roger Marshall, Marco Rubio, Eric Schmidt, Tommy Tuberville, and J.D. Vance. Now, most of those guys are either MAGA-adjacent or even, let's say, MAGA-friendly. Guys like Ron Johnson, Josh Hawley, Tommy Tuberville, J.D. Vance is tied Right to Donald Trump, as is Marco Rubio at this point. Eric Schmidt just came in in the last round. He was the former AG of Missouri who started the Missouri versus Biden case. And Mike Braun seems like a good one. Cruz, you could go either way. Danes, Kennedy, Loomis, Marshall. And then you've got James Langford and Bill Haggerty, who cannot be trusted at all whatsoever at any point ever. But Haggerty's from Tennessee and Lankford is from Oklahoma, so voting against the Constitution from those two states would probably not be looked upon very well. If you don't see your senator's name there, with the exception of Senator John Barrasso, who did not vote, he or she voted against clarifying that Congress's constitutional powers take precedence over Article 5 of the NATO treaty. The power to declare war is the most important power. The most important vote that any legislator will ever entertain, Paul said on the floor. Paul chided his colleagues for not taking more responsibility for the senatorial duties when it comes to war. Why is this important? Because in 2001, people voted to go to war, and this body still thinks that that vote binds us to war with no further vote, the senator said. We do need to reaffirm the power and the necessity of declaring war because we are ignoring it by continuing to be involved in military activity and war around the globe without ever voting on it as we are mandated by the Constitution. Paul ended. Now, it's worth taking a look at the 2001 authorization for use of military force. And as I said yesterday, I know that Wikipedia is not the source for the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But it is a good source of information from the regime's perspective. It's all you're allowed to know about these topics, but at least it sets the table in some sense. From the Wikipedia entry. Since its passage in 2001, U.S. presidents have interpreted their authority under the AUMF, that's Authorization for Use of Military Force, to extend beyond al-Qaeda and the Taliban in Afghanistan to apply to numerous other groups, as well as other geographic locales, due to the act's mission of any specific area of operations. In December 2016, the Office of the President published a brief interpreting the AUMF as providing congressional authorization for the use of force against al-Qaeda and other militant groups. Today, the full list of actors the U.S. military is fighting or believes itself authorized to fight under the 2001 AUMF is classified. The only representative to vote against the authorization in 2001 was Barbara Lee, who is still in Congress, who has consistently criticized it for being a blank check, giving the government unlimited powers to wage war without debate. Business Insider has reported that the AUMF has been used to allow military deployment in Afghanistan, the Philippines, Georgia, Yemen, Djibouti, Kenya, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Iraq, and Somalia. The 2001 AUMF has enabled the U.S. president to unilaterally launch military operations across the world without any congressional oversight or transparency for more than two decades. Between 2018 and 2020 alone, U.S. forces initiated what it labeled counter-terror activities in 85 countries. Of these, the 2001 AUMF has been used to launch classified military campaigns in at least 22 countries. Now, let's take a quick look at the text of the joint resolution. This is the preamble to authorize the use of United States armed forces against those responsible for the recent attacks launched against the United States. Whereas on September 11th, 2001, acts of treacherous violence were committed against the United States and its citizens. And whereas such acts render it both necessary and appropriate that the United States exercise its rights to self-defense and to protect United States citizens, both at home and abroad. And whereas in light of the threat, to the national security and foreign policy of the United States posed by these grave acts of violence, and whereas such acts continue to pose an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security and foreign policy of the United States, and whereas the president has authority under the Constitution to take action to deter and prevent acts of international terrorism against the United States. Now, therefore, be it resolved by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled. And that is where they lay out the authorization. Section one is simply the short title. The joint resolution may be cited as the authorization for use of military force. And section two, in general, that the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations or persons He determines planned, authorized, committed or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11th, 2001 or harbored such organizations or persons in order to prevent any future acts of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations or persons. Now, let's take just a second to pause here and think about what these words make our brains do. Because I think this might be one of those moments where you can clearly see the effects of our mass brainwashing by the mainstream media and by our culture at large, especially in the post 9-11 era. So the first question is, who is responsible for 9-11? And if you're a child-brained villager, then you will say Osama bin Laden in his cave in Afghanistan got some buddies together sent them all to the United States for a while. They all happened to know the CIA. And then they got on these planes and blew up these buildings. It was all Osama bin Laden's fault. It's Al Qaeda's fault. It's Afghanistan's fault. We're going to go have war in Afghanistan. And then we're going to stay there for a while to take their poppy fields. But we're going to have war in Afghanistan. And then we'll go to war in Iraq because that's sort of connected. I mean, Middle East, right? They're kind of all the same, aren't they? And then you're like, wait, wait, what was the question? Who was responsible for 9-11? Oh, yeah, Osama bin Laden. Yeah, it was Al-Qaeda. Get rid of all those complex thoughts. Just go back down to the little simple thought. Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, they did 9-11. Therefore, this authorization of use of military force is about Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Or at least it's about Middle East terrorism. You know, we're going to fight them over there so we don't have to fight them over here. That is the view of the standard villager, and it doesn't go any farther than that, despite knowing all those other facts that would suggest, hey, villager, it goes way farther than that. Now, do we know who was responsible for 9-11? Do we know everyone who was responsible for 9-11? We certainly don't. But there are a lot of theories out there that don't have anything to do with Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda and people in the Middle East. And I don't have to say that none of them were involved in any way, but there's far too much at question in that story to assume that the view of a standard issue villager is going to be sufficient for our understanding. It's not. It could not have been just Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. But let's look back at the text once again. To authorize the use of United States armed forces against those responsible for the recent attacks launched against the United States. So it really does matter who is believed to be responsible for the attacks when figuring out who can be addressed with this authorization for the use of military force. And you can imagine that a based red pilled and well-informed Trump supporter and really anyone in the MAGA movement would have an entirely different answer to that question than your standard issue villager or most importantly, People holding power within the regime who, of course, are responsible for the beliefs of standard issue villagers. Those beliefs all come from somewhere. It's not just the mainstream news. That mainstream news comes from higher authorities. How does the authorization for the use of military force read if we understand that those responsible for those recent attacks against the United States are not just Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda? but include all sorts of other regime assets and interests and figures and power players. Bankers, intelligence community, military industrial complex, a corrupt Saudi regime. The web of people responsible for those recent attacks against the United States is potentially quite large, which means that this authorization for the use of military force could be applied to all of them. And depending on how that is interpreted, it could legitimately and realistically take multiple decades to take down a web of conspirators that large. And I discussed this a bit with Burning Bright on Badlands Story Hour the other night. We were discussing RICO cases and RICO as a structure to bring down the entire web all at one time, thinking of each part as an individual node. That connects to all the other parts. We have separate investigations going on to figure out what each part individually is and make sure that the evidentiary basis is completely locked in. And then we move to other nodes and deal with the interconnectivity. But eventually, the web is all plotted out. The evidence is all there. And a RICO case can be presented. And RICO, by the way, is the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. It's what Rudy Giuliani used to take down the five families in the New York mafia. But everyone pretends that all of this is just crazy nonsense, even though Rudy Giuliani is Donald Trump's lawyer who was actually investigating the crimes by the Biden family in Ukraine. That's what the first impeachment hoax was all about. So it's absolutely possible that that's what's happening. Now, if you think about that RICO structure and you think about how long it might take to build that case in each one of those nodes and then put all those nodes together to build the case as a whole and then have an airtight RICO case to bring down the entirety of the deep state, well, that's a massive project. It's a project so big that it actually becomes understandable why people would believe that something like that isn't happening. And hey, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're right, but there's substantial reason to believe that it's possible and that it may well be happening. And so if you think about 9-11 and the web just attached to 9-11 as one of the nodes in this much larger web of global corruption, then it becomes easier to understand why it might take a really long time to track this whole thing and then go after it. Now, is that what's happening? I'm not sure that we can actually know for certain. But maybe there's a clue in how each presidential administration since the 2001 authorization for use of military force has viewed the AUM map. And conveniently, Wikipedia has an entry on that. And obviously, we will start with the George W. Bush administration. The AUMF was unsuccessfully cited by the George W. Bush administration in Hamdan versus Rumsfeld in 2006, in which the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the administration's military commissions at Guantanamo Bay were not competent tribunals as constituted and thus illegal. The court held that President George W. Bush did not have the authority to set up the war crimes tribunals and finding these special military commissions illegal under both military justice law and the Geneva Conventions. In 2007, the AUMF was cited by the Department of Justice in ACLU versus NSA as authority for engaging in electronic surveillance without obtaining a warrant of the special court as required by the Constitution. So the Bush administration just decided to use the authorization for use of military force to do whatever the hell they wanted. In 2012, this is the Obama administration now, journalists and activists brought a suit, Hedges versus Obama, against the National Defense Authorization Act for fiscal year 2012, in which Congress affirms presidential authority for indefinite detention under the AUMF and makes specific provisions as to the exercise of that authority. So, so far, we have illegal war crimes tribunals illegal military commissions and illegal surveillance under the Bush administration and indefinite detention under Obama. Still with Obama here, in 2016, constitutional law specialist professor Bruce Ackerman of Yale Law School said that the Obama administration's use of the AUMF to that point had overstepped the authorized powers of the final enacted version of the bill so as to more closely resemble the capabilities named in the draft text rejected by Congress. And that's very Obama-ish, of course, just doing whatever he wanted. So if you can conjure a picture in your mind of that picture taken a few years ago while George H.W. Bush was still alive, of H.W., W., Bill Clinton, Obama, and Jimmy Carter. And certainly if All five of them were still alive today. You could imagine Joe Biden in a picture with all of them. Somehow, the two far right Bush presidents and the quite liberal Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Jimmy Carter and Joe Biden are all friends now and agree on a whole range of priorities. That is the regime. That is the uniparty. And it's kind of sad that there are people who still don't recognize that who see a picture like that and think, ah, they're all putting their differences aside for the good of the country. Usually they're like cats and dogs, but they're able to come together on the really, really important stuff. And standard issue villagers think that that makes a lot of sense. But it's important to note that these people who have put their differences aside and come together are doing so in order to stop Donald Trump and his movement. They cannot have all of this given back to the people. They need to keep it for themselves and for the regime. They are willing to unite despite their differences to protect the country from Donald Trump. They're going to come together on the important stuff. So with that in mind, let's look at Trump's use of the AUMF. On June 29, 2017, a group of Libertarian Republicans and Democrats on the House Appropriations Committee approved Barbara Lee's amendment to end the 2001 authorization within 240 days. This would have forced debate on a replacement authorization, but the amendment was removed from the bill by the Rules Committee and the AUMF remains in effect. In 2018, Senators Tim Kaine and Bob Corker proposed several updates to the AUMF. In November 2019, the AUMF was supposed to be grounds for the occupation of Kurdish-controlled Syrian oil fields as the Trump administration sought legal authorization to maintain a presence in the area. So some people tried to remove it and change it while Trump was in office, and those efforts were largely thwarted, and we're told it provided the basis for the Occupation of Kurdish controlled Syrian oil fields. So, not massive violations of human rights like under Barack Obama and George W. Bush. And you got to wonder where Barbara Lee was while Barack Obama was president. Here's the entry under the Biden administration General Mark Milley, as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, testified in June 2021 that the 2001 authorization for the use of military force is the one we need to hang on to. It is the critical one for us to continue operations. That's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley. After the Biden administration conducted airstrikes in Somalia to support the Danab Brigade against the Al-Shabaab militants, Democrat Senator Ben Cardin, a senior member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, said that, quote, what the Biden team is doing is consistent with what we've seen now in three prior administrations. But it's, to me, inconsistent with the intent of Congress and called on the administration to, quote, submit a new authorization for the use of military force. Some Republicans supported the strikes with Senator Marco Rubio, vice chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, saying, quote, I don't think the president needs a law passed by Congress in order to target terrorists who are posing a threat to the United States, no matter where they are in the world. And that is kind of interesting because Rubio just sort of voted for the opposite. Now, as I said, much of this is a matter of perspective. Who is the one examining the situation, and who would we ascribe responsibility to for those attacks against the United States of America? That's what really matters. And there is some serious ambiguity there in the text. And perhaps that's intentional, because now it can be used broadly, and it can be used broadly in either direction. And we don't really have a good way of knowing, especially when we can't even know what it's being used to justify all of that is apparently classified. Do our representatives know? And if they do know, can we expect them to vote in our interest? Why don't we know? This is a government of, by, and for the people. That is what it is supposed to be. Our representatives are supposed to be representing us, not dealing with all the complicated stuff that we are not allowed to know. That's not how the country was designed. That's not what was intended. But we have been domesticated to the point where we believe that we don't have the right to know or the ability to understand what goes on at a high level. It's too dangerous for us to know if they let us know that in itself would be a threat to national security. Well, having these people in charge is a threat to national security. These people lied about a pandemic. They steal elections. They go to wars of choice and support Nazi armies in our name. They are the threat to national security. So the fact that we know none of this and that we're not allowed to know most of it is a real problem no matter what. But it's made much worse by the fact that we have a United States Senate right now where five out of six senators are unwilling to affirm that the U.S. Constitution supersedes Article 5 of NATO and that if any NATO country gets attacked the American military must respond regardless of what the Congress says and regardless of what the people say. They put a treaty in place a long time ago. Most of the signatory countries in that treaty don't live up to their responsibility. But nonetheless, young Americans of fighting age can still be sent over to Europe to defend European nations against Russia in conflicts that have all the moral imperative of this nonsense Ukraine war. And this is not just about war. It's about the principle. Does the U.S. Constitution supersede these treaties with global governing bodies and foreign nations? That is the sort of situation that should be impossible to ever encounter. I imagine the founders would have been sick to think that just 250 years down the line, The country could have been so infiltrated by traders and interlopers and foreign interests that we would place our agreements with global institutions over our own U.S. Constitution and the will of American men and women. How is that even possible under our Constitution? Under what process did they give all of this away? Is this our original Constitution? Is that how these senators are looking at it? Or are they just doing the bidding of these same global entities with the understanding that the Constitution, as written, is not the governing document in the first place? And then what does that mean more broadly? Because we are looking at a world where they are trying to sign more treaties with these global organizations. They're calling them treaties without ratification by the U.S. Senate. They are basically just conscripting the men and women of this country and the governments of this country, the local government, state governments, everything to follow the rules and regulations handed down by unelected global bureaucrats. Now, I mentioned this article yesterday, but I want to go through it a bit today. This is from The New York Times on Monday. Trump and allies forge plans to increase presidential power in twenty twenty five. Donald J. Trump and his allies are planning a sweeping expansion of presidential power over the machinery of government if voters return him to the White House in 2025, reshaping the structure of the executive branch to concentrate far greater authority directly in his hands. I mentioned yesterday how this was framed and how disingenuous this framing is. You have to intentionally misunderstand What is being proposed here in order to conclude that Donald Trump is trying to amass power for himself or even for the office of president? Their plans to centralize more power in the Oval Office stretch far beyond the former president's recent remarks that he would order a criminal investigation into his political rival, President Biden, signaling his intent to end the post Watergate norm of Justice Department independence from White House political control. You get that Donald Trump would be responsible for abolishing the post Watergate norm That the White House and the Justice Department are independent. That means that Joe Biden, despite having his Justice Department indict Donald Trump different times and people from his White House going around to different offices in the country to indict Donald Trump in different places and the DOJ's weaponization against Donald Trump supporters and the censorship of Donald Trump and his supporters and the relentless attacks to disqualify Donald Trump from office in any way imaginable, none of that stuff has broken this important post-Watergate norm. And of course, we're all supposed to understand that these norms are what save us from another Watergate. But what saves us from another Watergate is just completely demolishing the CIA. And everybody knows that. Isn't it incredible that despite all we've seen, From the illegitimate president, Joe Biden, Donald Trump would still be the one framed as the illegitimate authoritarian dictator of a banana republic if he actually assigned his DOJ to prosecute Joe Biden for the crimes Joe Biden is quite clearly guilty of. They are making up novel legal theories and figuring out whatever they can possibly figure out in order to pursue Donald Trump. But even the hint that all of these new precedents, all of these new norms might be used in a direction other than to bring down Donald Trump. Mr. Trump and his associates have a broader goal to alter the balance of power by increasing the president's authority over every part of the federal government that now operates by either law or tradition with any measure of independence from political interference by the White House, according to a review of his campaign policy proposals and interviews with people close to him. So the New York Times is upset that Donald Trump might want the executive branch to control executive branch agencies. Isn't that crazy? We are told that these executive branch agencies, the mass of federal bureaucracy, the administrative state, one of their best qualities is that they are independent and nonpartisan, which sounds wonderful if you are a standard issue villager and have no reason to believe that anyone might ever lie to you, especially not the government and the media, they would never lie. And if there's one thing they would absolutely never lie about, it's whether or not someone was independent and nonpartisan. And they like to call things nonpartisan and bipartisan when the work is being done on behalf of the regime and not one particular party. The entire federal bureaucracy can be totally enthralled to the global regime doing their bidding at every turn and still be nonpartisan. If we are reliant on the left right R.D. red blue dichotomy for our analysis. But it doesn't make any sense to do that because that's just not how the real world is. The administrative state bureaucracy is not independent from the global regime and it's not even independent from the White House. They just say that it's also not bipartisan or nonpartisan. They just say that. The administrative state is essentially just the home office of this massive corporation, that corporation being the global regime as it exists in America. The deep state bureaucracy is the collection of mid-level managers and all of the people in cubicles they manage, all of it on behalf of the global regime. The idea that, for instance, the Department of Education or the environmental protection agency or the agencies under DHS or HHS are not directly serving the global regime is absolutely bonkers. That is what they exist to do. That is not the system the constitution intended. That is the system of the global regime. They want to expand the bureaucracy as they do in any communist system. They need a system of administrators and managers, All they care about is the implementation of their goals. Do you think that they actually want input from the people? If they did, they wouldn't steal elections. And very few things could be more obvious than that. But back to the New York Times. Mr. Trump intends to bring independent agencies like the Federal Communications Commission, which makes and enforces rules for television and Internet companies, and the Federal Trade Commission which enforces various antitrust and other consumer protection rules against businesses under direct presidential control. He wants to revive the practice of impounding funds, refusing to spend money Congress has appropriated for programs a president doesn't like, a tactic that lawmakers banned under President Richard Nixon. So that means that because Congress allots money for certain agencies and bureaus or whatever, The president is thereby forced to allow that agency to function under the executive branch. That doesn't even make sense. The president is the chief executive from the article. He intends to strip employment protections from tens of thousands of career civil servants, making it easier to replace them if they are deemed obstacles to his agenda. And he plans to scour the intelligence agencies, the State Department and the defense bureaucracies to remove officials he has vilified as, quote, the sick political class that hates our country. Now, if this was an ad for Donald Trump, it could not have been written better. So thank you, New York Times, for that. It is wonderful from that perspective. And if that's what you're trying to do, Maggie Haberman, well, by God, you are a patriot. But there is very little reason to expect that that is what they're trying to do. So instead, this is just a completely dishonest framing of what Donald Trump intends to do, why he intends to do it, and what we should think about all of this if we care about the preservation of the United States of America. They are trying to convince the child brains in their audience that this is the dangerous authoritarian dictator Donald Trump trying to take all the power for himself. When really what this is, is Donald Trump removing power from unelected, unnecessary bureaucrats who believe it is their job, as the New York Times just stated, to keep their agenda going, even if the president does not want that agenda implemented. It is entirely justifiable for a president duly elected by the people to remove from the bureaucracy in the executive branch, whoever he wants. These people are serving at the pleasure of the president, and if they believe it is their job to become obstacles to the president's agenda, then they are the ones defying the constitutional order. This is not complicated stuff. What's complicated is trying to figure out where the power lies and how it came to be that none of the people in power seem to care whether their power is constitutional or whether in any way they are representing the will of the American people or even working for the good of the American people. It seems pretty clear that all they're doing is serving the agenda of the global state. And the New York Times thinks that we should be happy and supportive of that framing. Jumping down toward the end of the article. Mr. Trump has also vowed to impound funds or refuse to spend money appropriated by Congress. After Nixon used the practice to aggressively block agency spending he was opposed to on water pollution control, housing construction and other issues, Congress banned the tactic. Isn't that amazing? The Congress tried to undermine Richard Nixon's authority as president in the lead up to him being removed from office by the CIA. On his campaign website, Mr. Trump declared that presidents have a constitutional right to impound funds and said he would restore the practice, though he acknowledged it could result in a legal battle. And as always, the New York Times assumes that the child brains in their audience will understand that to mean that Donald Trump is doing something illegal, something that would result in a legal battle must be illegal. It cannot be the reverse of that where Donald Trump is doing something entirely legal that will nonetheless be challenged by people who don't want him to do that thing. We are all meant to understand that Donald Trump being the bad guy in every situation is also the bad guy in this situation. So something that results in a legal battle would be something illegal Donald Trump did. Mr. Trump and his allies also want to reform the civil service. Government employees who are supposed to be nonpartisan professionals and experts with protections against being fired for political reasons. The former president views the civil service as a den of, quote, deep staters who were trying to thwart him at every turn, including by raising legal or pragmatic objections to his immigration policies, among many other examples. Toward the end of his term, his aides drafted an executive order creating Schedule F in the expected service. That removed employment protections from career officials whose jobs were deemed linked to policymaking. Mr. Trump signed the order, which became known as Schedule F, near the end of his presidency, but President Biden rescinded it. Mr. Trump has vowed to immediately reinstitute it in a second term. Critics say he could use it for a partisan purge. But James Shirk, a former Trump administration official, who came up with the idea and now works at the America First Policy Institute, a think tank stocked heavily with former Trump officials, argued it would only be used against poor performers and people who actively impeded the elected president's agenda. And again, this is supposed to be seen as a bad thing. Can you even imagine that the scenario is otherwise? We have people in decision-making positions in the federal government, as the government exists currently. It will hopefully not exist this way in the future. We should just get rid of these agencies entirely. But how do we get to a place where people who are poor performers and blocking the elected president's agenda just get to keep their jobs? The president has no ability to fire them. Shirk says Schedule F expressly forbids hiring or firing based on political loyalty. Schedule F employees would keep their jobs if they served effectively and impartially. Mr. Trump himself has characterized his intentions rather differently, promising on his campaign website to, quote, find and remove the radicals who have infiltrated the federal Department of Education, end quote, and listing a litany of targets at a rally last month. We will demolish the deep state, Mr. Trump said at the rally in Michigan. We will expel the warmongers from our government. We will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists, Marxists and fascists, and we will throw off the sick political class that hates our country. And for the record, this article was not just Maggie Haberman. It was also Charlie Savage and Jonathan Swan, all absolute media hacks and regime tools, unless, of course, they're double agents. And then I'm sure we'll all owe them apologies. Now, despite their framing, there is probably a very good argument to be made that warmongers in government, globalists, people who are committed to the global order rather than serving America as the Constitution and their job description requires. Serving the global regime rather than America is a pretty clear marker of poor performance and impeding the elected president's agenda. It is always remarkable to me that supporters of the regime believe It is a good thing on principle to have a government filled with bureaucrats who will undermine the duly elected president at every turn, as long as that duly elected president is considered an adversary of the global regime. What are these people's political priorities? Because they sound just like regime propagandists. Now, I said I was going to talk about the potentially pending charges against Donald Trump, and we have certainly discussed the overreach and corruption of the illegitimate president's Department of Justice. This is from the New York Times yesterday. And once again, we have Maggie Haberman and Charlie Savage, this time joined by two other New York Times media hacks. It is always amazing to me that you need four professional journalists to compose an article of this quality. Federal prosecutors have introduced a new twist in the January 6th investigation by suggesting in a target letter that they could charge former President Donald J. Trump with violating a civil rights statute that dates back to the post-Civil War Reconstruction era, according to three people familiar with the matter. Three people familiar with the matter. Those are our sources. We can't know anything more about them. Just three people who think they know something. The letter to Mr. Trump from the special counsel, Jack Smith, referred to three criminal statutes as part of the grand jury investigation into Mr. Trump's efforts to reverse his 2020 election loss, according to two people with knowledge of its contents. So who would have knowledge of the contents of this target letter? Well, you would think Jack Smith and the people around him who composed the target letter, who are working directly on this part of the investigation. So one of them could have leaked to reporters and the other people who would know would be Donald Trump and his attorneys and maybe some other people around Trump, but there aren't a lot of parties that could have leaked to the media about what's going on here. It's worth at least considering that it came from the Trump side, especially when you remember that Donald Trump himself is the one who announced the existence of this target letter, but Let's continue. Two of the statutes were familiar from the criminal referral by the House January 6th Committee and months of discussion by legal experts, conspiracy to defraud the government and obstruction of an official proceeding. Remember that sham January 6th Committee from last year, not set up according to the rules of the House of Representatives? The minority leader was not able to choose which Republicans would sit on the committee. It was just Liz Cheney and crying Adam Kinzinger. That beautiful primetime television show that was produced by actual television producers. They took video footage from inside the Capitol and just spliced on audio. They found ridiculous people telling ridiculous stories claiming to be Eyewitnesses or secondhand eyewitnesses. The entire thing was a comical farce, but they referred to the Department of Justice their recommendations on how Donald Trump should be indicted. Back to the article. But the third criminal law cited in the letter was a surprise Section 241 of Title 18 of the United States Code, which makes it a crime for people to, quote, conspire to injure, oppress, threaten or intimidate any person in the free exercise or enjoyment of any right or privilege secured to him by the Constitution or laws of the United States. Now, it is absolutely baffling how they're going to try to apply this to Donald Trump vis-a-vis January 6th. That will be like watching a Bikram yoga session. A bunch of crazy people in a really hot room trying to contort themselves into unsustainable positions. But I can't wait to see it because let's just read this again. Conspire to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate any person in the free exercise or enjoyment of any right or privilege secured to him by the Constitution or laws of the United States. Well, that sounds rather expansive. Let's apply the same thinking. That we were applying to the authorization for the use of military force in Afghanistan from 2001. It said those responsible for the recent attacks. So depending on who is considered responsible, you have a lot of leeway in how to interpret that. The same thing applies here. And that's why I find it so interesting that this is being brought up in this context. Now, everything coming from the Jack Smith investigation is pure nonsense. None of this is anything to worry about. This is a hilarious show, a public disclosure. The walls are, in fact, not closing in. The walls are never going to close in. I'm not sure if people have realized that or not. A lot of people are still apparently very, very worried that the walls might eventually close in and then all hell will break loose. We'll just be sent into this state of chaos, but it's not true. And you can see from the pattern, it is clearly not true. You can also detect the panic from the other side. They know it's not true. So all of this is being brought up in a context that seems directed at Donald Trump, but is not in fact threatening Donald Trump. And that context can then be reversed and used the other way once the country understands the concepts involved. And that's why the broad interpretation of this is critical in thinking about where this might head in the future. Once again, Section 241 of Title 18 of the U.S. Code makes it a crime for people to conspire to injure, oppress, threaten or intimidate any person in the free exercise or enjoyment of any right or privilege secured to him by the Constitution or laws of the United States. How many rights have we had violated by this ridiculous, illegitimate government? By all means, inform Americans about the possibility of this. Donald Trump says it's an honor to be indicted. This is what he means. His indictment is an opportunity for America to learn what America is really about. And what it looks like to have this country undermined by an actual malignant force. This is what we are being shown. We should learn the lesson as quickly as possible. Ignore the stress about Donald Trump being indicted. That doesn't even stress me out anymore. And as I mentioned yesterday, sooner or later, even in the minds of standard issue villagers, they are going to see this as the boy who cried indictment. Donald Trump can say he's indicted another 20 times, and every time he does it, they will take it less and less seriously. Imagine what it does to their minds. Back to the article. Congress enacted that statute after the Civil War to provide a tool for federal agents to go after Southern whites, not Southern Democrats, not Southern Democrats, just, you know, Southern whites, including KKK members who engaged in terrorism to prevent formerly enslaved African-Americans from voting. Again, that's Democrats, Democrats, only Democrats. That's Democrats. This law was set up to go after Democrats. But in the modern era, it has been used more broadly, including in cases of voting fraud conspiracies. Oh, well, that's interesting. What is the connection here? Voting fraud conspiracies. My, my, my. Consider my interest sparked a Justice Department spokesman declined to discuss the target letter and Mr. Smith's theory for bringing the Section 241 statute into the January 6th investigation. But the modern usage of the law raised the possibility that Mr. Trump, who baselessly declared the election he lost to have been rigged, could face prosecution on accusations of trying to rig the election himself. You see that Donald Trump violated this section of the code because he was trying to deprive Americans and mass of their constitutionally guaranteed right to cast their vote. It's only targeting Trump. It could never, ever, ever be used the other way around, except that it absolutely can. A series of 20th century cases upheld application of the law in cases involving alleged tampering with ballot boxes by casting false votes or falsely tabulating votes after the election was over, even if no specific voter could be considered the victim. Isn't that amazing? That is directly talking about a standing issue in the courts, the same standing issue that was used to dismiss election cases after the 2020 election but that's not all. And let's go through what this says. Once again, cases involving alleged tampering with ballot boxes by casting false votes or falsely tabulating votes after the election was over. So you apply that to January 6th. What does that mean? What could Trump be accused of in the context of this reading regarding January 6th? Well, he was trying to prevent the electoral votes from being tabulated After the election was over, it sounds like that's where they're going with this. And good luck, commies. Good luck. I wish you all the luck in the world in pursuing this charge. I hope you talk about it 24 hours a day on television. I hope you educate every American about exactly what this says so that they know you can be federally charged and pursued by the DOJ for tampering with the ballot box and votes or tampering with the count. After the election is over. Wonderful news. Thank you very much. New York Times. Let everybody know. Tell them 24 hours a day. Make sure that they understand. Make sure they can never forget. Go on over to that ranch in Yellowstone. Grab one of those hot irons and brand it on their little child brains. In fact, let's make Section 241 of Title 18 of the U.S. Code everyone's favorite part of federal law. Back to the New York Times. In a 1950 opinion by the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, for example, Judge Charles C. Simons wrote of applying Section 241 in a ballot box stuffing case that the right to an honest count, quote, is a right possessed by each voting elector. And to the extent that the importance of his vote is nullified wholly or in part, He has been injured in the free exercise of a right or privilege secured to him by the laws and Constitution of the United States. Wonderful. Let's get all of this clarified and out there on the record. Let's make sure every American citizen understands the importance of those words, regardless of the standing of an individual voter or the injury to an individual voter. It is absolutely critical not to deprive voters of their right to exercise their vote and have their vote counted. And the nullification of that vote in any scenario is a violation of that right, not only for that person, but for everybody who then has to live with the results of a fraudulently decided election going on. In a 1974 Supreme Court opinion upholding the use of Section 241 to charge West Virginians who cast fake votes on a voting machine, Justice Thurgood Marshall cited Judge Simons and added that every voter, quote, has a right under the Constitution to have his vote fairly counted without its being distorted by fraudulently cast votes. And there we have it once again. Tell every American this is wonderful, wonderful news. If only these laws had existed in 2020. Oh, no, wait, they're from the Civil War era. I wonder why they weren't enforced in 2020 and for these last few years. But now they're going to try to enforce them against Donald Trump. And in the process of doing that, though, Trump is under no threat whatsoever. The rest of the nation is going to wake up and gain the knowledge that these laws exist. And this is how things are supposed to work. Courts have ruled this way in the past. And they might come to have this as a viewpoint of how these sorts of things should be adjudicated. It's a good thing that Trump conceded and all those court decisions went against him and they're all over and done with, isn't it? Child brains. I mean, that's this, that's, that, that, that's the scenario. I mean, right. He conceded, didn't he? No. Oh no, no, he didn't concede. And there are still open court cases. Gosh, that's strange. I guess they'd all better hope that this interpretation of these laws is never applied to anything from the other side, or this might be a huge disaster. Now, the New York Times quotes none other than Norm Eisen, the author of the color revolution playbook. Essentially, he says it seems like under 241, there's at least a right to an honest counting of the votes, said Norm Eisen, who worked for the House Judiciary Committee during Mr. Trump's first impeachment. Almost every job the guy has ever had serves to undermine the United States and its constitution in favor of the global regime. He also just so happened to have met President Barack Obama while the two were at Harvard Law. He also signed the bar complaint against attorney John Eastman and has worked to protect the investigation in Fulton County. But he goes on and says... Submitting an alternate electoral certificate to Congress as opposed to casting false votes or counting wrong is a novel scenario, but it seems like it would violate this right. So they got another novel legal theory on which they're going to pursue Donald Trump. Submitting alternate electors is against the law. That's what we're being told. And Donald Trump Himself didn't do that, but they're going to say he conspired to do that. So that fits in with the text of Section 241, Title 18 that says it's a crime to conspire to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate any person in the free ex- exercise or enjoyment of any right or privilege secured to him by the Constitution or laws of the United States. Conspire to injure, oppress, etc. So a conspiracy by Donald Trump to submit these alternate electors. That's the crime. It sounds like Donald Trump's about to be indicted for. But others have done that and encouraged it. And I'm not going to play this whole video, but these are a collection of communist actors who made a video in 2016 encouraging alternate electors be sent in favor of Hillary Clinton so that at the certification, there would be objections to the electors of various states, and they would encourage electors to vote instead for Hillary Clinton, and Hillary Clinton would then become president. It wasn't illegal then, it's only illegal now because it's Donald Trump. Republican members of the Electoral College, this message is for you. As you know, our founding fathers built the Electoral College to safeguard the American people from the dangers of a demagogue and to ensure that the presidency only goes to someone who is to an eminent degree endowed with the requisite qualifications. An eminent degree, someone who is highly qualified for the job. The Electoral College was created specifically to prevent an unfit candidate from becoming president. There
1: are 538 members of the Electoral College. You.
0: And just 36 other conscientious Republican electors can make a difference
1: by voting your conscience on December
0: 19th. And thereby shaping the future of our nation. I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. I'm not asking you to vote for Hillary Clinton. Clinton. As you know, the Constitution gives electors the right to vote for any eligible person. Any eligible person, no matter which party they belong to. But it should certainly be someone you consider especially competent.
1: Especially competent to serve as president of the United States of America.
0: By voting your conscience,
1: you and other brave Republican electors can give the House of Representatives
0: the option to select a qualified candidate for the presidency. I stand with you. I stand with you. I stand with you. I stand with you you in support and solidarity with conservatives, independents, and liberals. And all citizens of the United States, the American people trust that your voice speaks for us all.
1: And that you, you will make yourself heard through the constitutional responsibility granted to you by Alexander Hamilton himself.
0: What is evident is that Donald Trump lacks more than the qualifications to be president. He lacks the necessary stability. And clearly the respect for the constitution of our great nation.
1: You have position.
0: The authority. And the opportunity to go down in the books as an American hero.
1: Who changed the course of history.
0: And it actually continues on from there. Now, none of these people could actually identify any argument that suggests Donald Trump was not duly elected. They have some vague interpretation that they still cling to about how Russia somehow rigged the election in his favor. Even though the Russiagate hoax was entirely made up, the Steele dossier was an opposition research project funded by the Clinton campaign, made up out of absolutely nothing. The Mueller investigation found no collusion, but that is their claim that somehow Donald Trump was not duly elected. They were legitimately making baseless claims upon zero evidence, but they all felt confident in claiming it, and they encouraged slates of alternate electors. They encouraged the electors to switch their vote, to become what's called faithless electors. Now, that's not what was encouraged by our side, and it wasn't encouraged by Donald Trump. We wanted full investigations and full audits and for the electors to vote for the candidate who actually won in that state with real lawful American votes. But we were never allowed to examine the votes, and we were told to simply suck it up and deal with it. Now, despite the fact that these actors were encouraging all of this to satisfy their own Political desires, I would never suggest that they be pursued legally for making these statements. I'm not going to call them insurrectionists and hope that they are imprisoned for making this very, very stupid and anti American commercial. In some sense, I'm actually happy that it exists because it's just more evidence of how utterly hypocritical and unprincipled these people are. And all of that will be very helpful in the future. But it's worth noting that the Department of Justice under the illegitimate president, you know, that very independent Department of Justice, is trying to indict a former president, quote unquote, for encouraging what these actors were encouraging just four years prior. Did they also violate the law? Would they say they violated the law? If Trump violated the law for doing this, then surely They violated the law for doing this as well. So if they're saying that Trump violated the law, that means they're saying they violated the law, too, because they did the same thing. Back to the article. The prospect of charging Mr. Trump under the other two statutes cited in the target letter is less novel, if not without hurdles. Among other things, in its final report last year, the House committee that investigated the events that culminated in the January 6th attack on the Capitol had recommended that the Justice Department charge the former president under both of them. One, Section 371 of Title 18, makes it a crime to conspire to defraud the United States. The other, Section 1512, includes a provision that makes it a crime to corruptly obstruct an official proceeding. Now that's very, very interesting because was there a conspiracy to defraud the United States? And I would say yes, there was. There was the conspiracy of everyone involved in that election theft in 2020 that ended with the false certification of elections within the states and then the false certification of electors on January 6th. All of that was a conspiracy. To defraud the United States, every single bit of that was a conspiracy to defraud the United States. And then let's look at the other, a provision that makes it a crime to corruptly obstruct an official proceeding. Now, we are told that all of that is being applied to Donald Trump because Donald Trump called the protesters to Washington and he gave that speech where he said, walk peacefully and patriotically down to the Capitol and make your voices heard. That was Donald Trump inciting an insurrection. And he was inciting that insurrection to obstruct the official proceeding. That is their logic. That's what they're trying to claim. None of that obviously is true in any way and will never hold up to any scrutiny whatsoever anywhere. But that is the claim. Now, can that claim be reversed? And does it make sense when you look at it in the mirror? Well, Yeah, maybe it does, because there was all sorts of deep state involvement in the very violent insurrection on January 6th, to the extent that Nancy Pelosi or any other congressional or Senate leader or anyone involved on the Biden side of things, anyone in the law enforcement community or the intel community, any of them who were involved in the false flag aspects of January 6th did in fact obstruct that proceeding. And when the proceeding restarted rather than doing two hours of objection in each house for each one of the objectionable states, that would be 12 hours in each body. They did two hours total at the same time in both bodies. And that was that that was the end of the objection debate. It happened at night. America had tuned out by then, already rattled from the events of the day and what they were told about the very violent insurrection. And then in the middle of the night, votes were taken. The electors were certified. And Joe Biden was the president elect officially. The question to ask yourself is, can these things be applied in the other direction? How can they be applied in the other direction? And does that application make sense? if that application makes sense as this thing continues to progress forward and you can see that being possible in the future, you at least have to consider the idea that it will be applied in reverse in the future. And everything we have discussed today can be applied in the other direction. We are used to accepting the media's framing of all these things and the media is Always going to frame things in a way that makes it look bad for the opponents of the regime. But that doesn't mean their framing is correct. The way we view this is a matter of perspective and the way it's applied is going to be a question of exactly where the power lies. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Mast and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at i'myourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range.